Hello, you. Welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Happy New Year. Today, we are talking about mermaids. We're talking about it with our great friend, Claire Comstock Gay. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I will soon be joined by my marvelous co-host, Sarah Marshall. You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies is a show where we watch a movie with a friend, almost always with a friend, but sometimes it's just Sarah and me, but we watch a movie and we are not movie critics. We are people who watch the movie and we uh, unpack the ways that it makes us feel and relate to the world. That's what we're doing here. So please join us in that journey as we talk about mermaids. I'm pretty sure that Mermaids, at this point, is our most requested movie uh, of all the movies that we have not yet covered. It is a 1990 American family comedy drama film directed by Richard Benjamin and starring Cher, Bob Hoskins, Winona Ryder, Michael Schofling, and Christina Ricci in her film debut. It is based on Patty Dan's 1986 novel of the same name. It's set in the early 1960s. Its plot follows a neurotic teenage girl who moves with her wayward mother and young sister to a small town in Massachusetts. Claire Comstock Gay has been on the show many times. She has written horoscopes under the name Madam Clairvoyant since 2012. Uh, she is the author of a really fantastic astrology book called Madam Clairvoyant's Guide to the Stars. I love this book. Uh, we all have it. We all refer to it. Uh, and I'm not even using a rhetorical we all. I'm talking about everyone on the team <laughs> has this book. Uh, we have it in our household, and uh, I love it. Claire has also written for the New York Times and has been featured on NPR's On Point in Bitch Magazine's Propaganda Podcast. Uh, she lives in Minnesota. How are you doing? How are your New Year's celebrations? How is the holiday overall? What are your hopes and dreams for 2024? Let us know. We are on uh, many social media platforms as You Are Good or You Are Good Pod. You can find us there. I am on TikTok, although I have been bad at maintaining that. But a New Year's resolution of mine is to be better at maintaining TikTok. <laughs> like what's more important than making sure uh, that your TikTok presence is buffed and shiny for the new year? But anyway, let us know how you're doing. Let us know what is going on in your world. And don't forget... That you, my friend, are good. You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies, is made possible with and by your support. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and Apple Podcast subscriptions. Truly, we couldn't do this without you. Uh, this is how we're able to pay a team to make a show. And uh, I appreciate that you recognize that uh, if something is made for, uh, quote, free consumption, it still costs some money. <laughs> so thanks, everyone who supports us there. We appreciate it. In exchange, you get bonus episodes. Uh, this month's bonus episode is about the movie Barbie, which um, I think many of you have seen. And uh, Sarah and I uh, unpack it. We talk about our feelings. We talk about what it evokes in us. We talk about hype. We talk about movies based on toys we talk about uh if it's a movie's responsibility to do all of the lifting for the deficiencies of hollywood over the past 30 years it's a great chat we had a lot of fun so i look forward to sharing that with you in our bonus episodes we will get back to covering uh carrie bradshaw and hannibal lecter throughout this year but uh we're kicking off the year by talking about barbie it's perfect because it's awards season uh and it is awards fodder Hey, don't forget that Sarah Chelsea Weber-Smith and uh, I will be at San Francisco Sketchfest. You can find a link to tickets in the show notes. We finally know what movie we're talking about. Guess what we're talking about? We will be discussing Forrest Gump. So come see us talk at San Francisco Sketchfest. If there's a good enough recording, we will very likely release it here. But please come be part of the fun in real time. We'd love to see you in the audience. Uh, it's coming up. Paul Giamatti was at the Golden Globes, uh, won a Golden Globe, was interviewed on the red carpet. When asked what his favorite movie was, he said, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, we have that in common, evidently. <laughs> and the host like was trying to play grossed out or whatever. It was like, oh, you're sick, Paul. And he said, no, it's a great film. It's a beautiful film. And I love that he said that because it's true. We talk all about that in our Texas Chainsaw Massacre episode from a couple years ago. And I 
I'm just going to say this. We'd be happy to cover that movie again, Mr. Giamatti, if you wanted to come on to You Are Good and unpack those Texas Chainsaw Massacre feelings with us. Finally, if you, like me, uh, have been looking for activities to be engaged in with regard to demanding a ceasefire, you can look no further than the folks at Jewish Voice for Peace, an organization for Jews and allies who are calling for ceasefire. I've been involved in uh, some of their events, and I have really appreciated the work that they're doing. So you can find them online at Jewish Voice for Peace. I'll have a link to their uh, upcoming events in the show notes. All right, that's enough for me. Let's get into it. Let's go to a small New England town. Let's uh, hang with Cher. Let's hang with Winona Ryder. Let's hang with Christina Ricci. And let's be romanced by Bob Hoskins. Let's dive in, shall we? Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. If I could turn back time. <laughs> did you listen all the way through to the second credit song? I did not. What is it? Wait, no. Is it Claire? Is it Claire? Is it Cher singing the Shoop Shoop song? Does he love me? I it sure is. <laughs> Sarah, clearly we're talking about mermaids, or if it's not clear, it's clear now. Uh, who are we talking about mermaids with? We're talking about mermaids with our New Year's girly, Claire. Um, And Claire, you were last with us talking about Newsies, and now you're back with something equally epic. I am. I'm so happy to be here talking about my favorite actor, my favorite human, my favorite role model in life, Cher. Back again. I'm so happy. (laughs) Jake Ryan. Jake Ryan. (laughs) We do a New Year's movie with you every year. We always have. It feels really great. So we started off with Moonstruck Mm. and then and then we moved on to Titanic and then Newsies. And now we're going back to share back to like (laughs) I was just learning about the mother sauces. I think like Escoffier, the guy who invented cuisine, not really, but kind of codified the mother sauces, which are the five main sauces in French cookery from which then like the daughter sauces are derived. Mm, so it's like primary and secondary colors. Yeah, but with sauce. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And share is the mother sauce somehow. <laughs> I don't know how that's true, but it's true. Share is the mother sauce. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, people should listen to the Moonstruck episode you did with us because it was so fun. And we got so into what Cher means to us. But like, I'm so excited to talk about her. Claire, what's your relationship with this movie? Which I, I we were talking earlier, and I think that this is the most requested movie that we have not covered yet. So there's a lot of people who feel the same way you do. I love that. And that surprises me a little bit, just because I feel like that's not a movie that I like talk about a lot with people. I feel like Titanic, for instance, or Moonstruck sure. is a people that people always talk about. It's a known favorite. And this one feels like more of a private favorite for people or for me anyway <laughs> right um not a guilty pleasure type favorite but just it's something i discovered on my own i watched it by myself i didn't know that other people love it and i'm very happy that they do i think i only watched this after i saw moonstruck and was like give me more of <laughs> share it's it's funny because like it's so We'll get into all of this, but like I can think of few other movies that are just like kind of aimed at a family. Like this is kind of a family comedy, but also about like an unapologetic slut and her horny daughter. <laughs> it's about two sluts. It's really one of the great movies of horniness, like the ballad of female horniness. It's mermaids. Yeah. Yeah. And there's like they're, they're the classmates who's like, oh, I blew a guy or whatever. And then we were like down by the wherever. She says oral sex. She didn't say I blew a guy. She said oral sex by the railroad trestle. That's an insane line. And it's none of it is like bad. Uh-huh. That's just a thing that happened. And I love it. And so many people I know who saw this movie it was like packaged with all the other movies for 90s youngsters. 
Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. Can I tell you about a really shameful moment I had in religion class in seventh grade? You're obligated. Which is that we were watching this very dated video about how like teens are being exposed to too much like sex in the media. And because it was so dated, and this was like the year 2000 or so, they showed a montage that included the iconic cover for Madonna's Like a Prayer. And I had this moment of like, oh my God, I've been manipulated by sex in the media through that album I love, Like a Prayer. And I genuinely felt like, oh no. And I look back on that and I'm like, God, I was an idiot. And like one of the ways I feel like I was got the most was through purity culture. And I like genuinely felt like Jesus didn't want me to have sex. And in conclusion, why did my parents send me to Christian schools if they didn't even believe they didn't even want Jesus to stop me from having sex? They just kind of were indifferent to sex. And I think that more parents today are concerned about helping their children to want to have sex. And I think that's (laughs) nice. I hope they want that. I want that for my kids. Sex for my kids. <laughs> Whenever they feel safe and are excited about it. Somehow that's what this episode, that's what it's all about in the end. Let's just put it out front. <laughs> A thing just happened and we all witnessed it. Do you think that that thing that you watched, was that like one of the first pieces of media criticism that landed with you? Hmm. Maybe. Yeah. Ooh. Yikes. <laughs> you've been dissecting the media ever since <laughs> yeah i had to re-dissect it back but yeah it's because they're i mean the, the Cher and winona Ryder's characters in this movie are both women fundamentally who make terrible decisions and are like i'm sorry but i was scared and or horny so <laughs> and that's so true they're so good I mean, this is interesting. This is like kind of a bag of vignettes, but also a it also has a bit of more of a through line than normal. Yeah. Can you walk us through where are they? They're in Eastport, Massachusetts. Yeah, they're in imaginary town, Massachusetts. They're right by Christmas Town. I think this was filmed partly in Manchester by the sea, later made famous by Casey Vanilla Nut Taps. Don't work with him, Affleck. (laughs) Yeah, so Mermaids is a movie that I also saw probably around the age of 15, actually, and felt very represented by because it's about a teenage girl who is like resolutely against fun. (laughs) You know, she is standing tall and proud against fun. (laughs) And so this is set in the fall of 1963. Oh, no. This is the fall after Baby and Johnny either continue their relationship or amicably part ways at the end of the summer at Kellerman's. (laughs) Like, comment, and subscribe and tell us your thoughts about that. I'll make that our poll because Spotify now makes you do a poll for each of these things. I'll make that be our poll for the episode. What? Can I just say... Yes, please. I listen to stuff on Spotify because I'm lazy and there's a monopoly going on, but Spotify is so horrible and I wait with bated breath to see what it destroys next. It's the fucking worst. Spotify, I'm I'm talking inside of you right now. You're the worst. I hate you. <laughs> I'm imprisoned inside of you like the people in the cube in the movie Cube. Oh, it's the fucking worst. Say say why it's the worst, Alex, for a second for people who don't know. It's okay if you don't know. You can't know everything that's the worst. There's too much stuff that's the worst for you to keep up with. There's so many worsts. I mean, so the biggest reason is it's a tech and data company that got into music distribution and made artists compensation about a, a one hundredth of what it was 20 years ago. And, and it wasn't good 20 years ago, to be It wasn't clear. good 20 years ago. So there's that. They thought for a minute that they could make a great deal of money on podcasts. So podcasters could make money, which created a really weird and terrible situation. They were like, we can't pay musicians, but we can Mm -hmm. pay podcasters because we can sell ads. And in a moment of revenge of the nerds, some podcasters and podcast companies were like, let's not worry about that. That's exactly right. And then they overestimated what the money situation would be and over flooded the market financially on those podcasts, which helped 
create the big dip in podcast revenue we saw for the past couple of years. So it wasn't actually all Carrie Bradshaw's fault. <laughs> it wasn't all Carrie Bradshaw's fault. They really play fast and loose with any compensatory morality, not surprisingly, because at the end of the day, they're a tech and data harvesting company. Yeah. Sorry, guys, but it's true. <laughs> the, the way Spotify compensates artists is like this story from the Donner Party where like one of the Donner moms had a Christmas feast for the children. They had like a single pea and a single piece of dried corn and, you know, like five grains of rice or something like that. And they like cooked it and we're like, now don't eat it all at once. It's a big meal. Ha ha ha. Was, you know, which is a story I love because it's like, we don't talk enough about the jokes people make in survival situations, <laughs> as I'm always saying. But like, we're inside Spotify. Podcasts need to be distributed somehow, it turns out. Like, the idea of technology bringing the artist closer to the consumer is something of a myth. This time next year, Claire, hopefully, we're talking to you on a show that's distributed by pigeons with little wax cylinders <laughs> or cassette tapes <laughs> strapped to their ankles. I love that. So what happens What's in Mermaids? Mermaids, about? <laughs> so, Mermaids is about a family made up of Mrs. Flax, her daughter, Charlotte, and their little sister, youngest daughter, Kate, Christina Ricci. She's a tiny little baby. It's so funny that like the Adams family comes out the next year and she just looks like, I know it's partly because she's style, but she just looks like she's a fundamentally different child than she will be as Wednesday Adams in the rest of her career. Yeah. Well, she really is like a baby in this movie. She's, she's so little. <laughs> it looks like she grows like five years in a year that happens between these two movies. She is like, yeah, she's like, she's like a little water sprite. And so she's this great swimmer. <laughs> she is. She wants to swim across the English Channel someday. And she's like practicing holding her breath and stuff. And the flax girlies relocate every time Cher has an affair in town that goes awry, which, as you can imagine, is pretty often. And what's interesting is that they don't just bop over to the next town. Cher like picks a town on a map of the country and then they just go there. So they go from Oklahoma to Massachusetts, which is like an in cold blood length of road trip. You're like, what happened on the drive out there? What was that all like? You know. And so the movie really is about them settling into this new town. Cher starts dating Bob Hoskins, who's a shoe salesman who is at the PTA meeting for some reason. Why is he there? He believes in the kids. Can I just go to like the school by my house and be like, I just want to learn about the kids. I like so Bob, Bob goes and it's not directly related to knowing Cher is going to be there because they like ask him to be there for some reason. But he meets Cher. They all go into a shoe shop. Just is immediately unabashedly thirsty mm -hmm. in like not somehow not a creepy way but just in a like he's like this is what i need and you need this bob hoskins here's what i've realized lately from talking to men sexually which is something i didn't do for a long time because like i feel like i've said a lot of like high flying stuff in the past decade or so about how like these theories about how men are so derailed by lust and can't think with a hard on or like too simplistic and they like rob men of their institutional power and blah, blah, blah. And I think it's true. I think we like lean on these myths to blame women for everything because that's what we want to do anyway. But also I do realize now that straight men are like just unbelievably easy to hack into. And if you just <laughs> wear like, I've also never had boobs before and now I do, I gained a bunch of weight and now I have cleavage and i've realized now that if breasts are in the room then like everything changes it's like an entirely new character and like my view of the world has been altered it's fascinating interesting well congratulations to you <laughs> first of all happy new year mazel tov it's been exciting yeah <laughs> i knew i would get here i guess didn't know how or when but it is just like the thing. Yeah. The thing of Bob Hoskins just being like, like the light goes on. He's just like, bing, I'm going to date you. And you're just like, right. Cher is like going from town to town as a sexually available single woman in America in 1963. And like the unabashedness of men, especially in that era, is just like, you know. Yeah. 
Yeah. There's what do you make of his this this just could be my read and it could be the wrong read. It feels like anybody else playing this character or the character himself having the same obvious appetite and interest mm-hmm. would be off-putting. But is it something about like the flavor of his appetite or is it just Bob Hoskins himself that sells this? Claire, are you, are you sold? I mean, I'm sold, but I really like Bob Hoskins. We've established that on this show. Yeah, no, I'm 100% sold. I'm delighted by him from like the moment, you know, he puts sells shoes to those nuns in his store. It's like this man, like, all right, you know, okay. And then Cher shows up in her like, she's so funny. I don't know. Because she's so hot in this movie, right? So hot. Like crazy. So hot. <laughs> next level eyelids. Like next level. She looks like a cartoon character practically. She's like a sexy cartoon character. She almost doesn't look like a human woman. She's so hot. <laughs> <laughs> it's continuing Bob Hoskins' era of cartoon women. Yeah, she's the Jessica, Jessica Rabbit. Rabbit to the Bob Hoskins. <laughs> and I think, yeah, no, I'm totally sold by him. He seems just, I think partly, you know, he's... <laughs> He's just a guy and he's so pure about it, right? There's no slickness to him. He's just a guy and he's like, yeah, you hot woman. Like, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, I was brushing up on pickup artist culture recently, <laughs> you know, like you do. I don't know. At a certain point, YouTube just starts recommending it. And you're just like, all right, I have a lot of dishes to do. And like, it's, do you remember, Alex? You're going to be red pilled in no time. <laughs> Well, but it's just like, it's also clearly miserable and no one's having fun, right? Yes. And like, I do recommend that there's a great H Bomber guy video about pickup artist culture that's like several years old at this point. And it is nice that we hear a lot less about pickup artist culture stuff, except that that's just because pickup artist culture has just become normie culture and we don't mention it anymore. So that's the, you know, it's not like it went away or something. But like, do you guys remember there's like, a pickup artist, like a Roosh parody in Bob's Burgers at some point. And one of the things he says is never make her pancakes. Make her <laughs> make you pancakes in the middle of the night. You know, and like that's barely a parody, you know, because like the real advice is like never say she's attractive and like never worry about her pleasure while having sex. Sex is about your play, you know, and this thing where like it's all about numbers and it's like it feels like combat and like you're meeting women in this like vengeful kind of a way where no one is enjoying anything. And I feel like the for Bob Hoskins to be like a creepy townie (laughs) where we're like, oh, no, here we go again. It feels like he would have to have like because there's the element of the way men are what we kind of describe as male lust, but is really feels much more colored by like the equation of lust with power and the idea of like, I want to have sex with that woman and therefore possess her and therefore be allowed to, you know, beat her and stuff. Well, yeah. Cause like he's in, it doesn't seem like he's like, she belongs to me in a really interesting way. He seems genuinely enchanted by her. Right. And then there's just the desire. There's the thing of like, I want to kiss that person and, have sex with them and touch butts you know which like doesn't have to be connected to like possession it's just that we have created a culture where it is yes absolutely so it feels very it feels like pure wholesome lust pure wholesome lust is really it which i think is a thing yeah not in purity culture but but in reality (laughs) yeah (laughs) right and that's that's what i feel robbed of by my weird education as much as i enjoyed singing as much amy grant and sister act as we did (laughs) i also i'm gonna say three words that like for some listeners this is gonna send you into a memory hole like it did for me when i heard them for the first time in decades recently are you ready shut de doe Shut the door, keep out the devil. Shut the door, keep the devil in the night. Shut the door, keep out the devil. Light the candle, everything's all right. It's a very offensive, very widespread in evangelical and just general Protestant culture song of the 90s. Like if you had a, a youth pastor in your life in 1998, I feel like you'll know that song. But we sang it like at least once a month at my school. 
Wowie. Yeah. So let me just add, let me, because I feel like this is, even I'm confused by this. And this is, there's some stuff in the movie to touch on some of the stuff. So you went to a religious school, a Christian religious school. Mm Mm-hmm. Episcopalian. In Episcopalian school. You're Jewish, right? But you're not practicing Jew? Yeah, I'm descended from like a long line of apathetic people. (laughs) (laughs) Some of whom were Jewish. That is... (laughs) And I identify as as a Jewish American because, you know, I feel scared all the time. So it makes sense. But you never like your parents didn't identify as the religion that you like went to school. No, like, like, they had no real religion that you went to school with. Do you know why that happened? No one knows why anything happens, especially in regards to, <laughs> to their childhood. But no, my it's like there's like a joke in like the Philomena Kunk stuff, which I highly recommend generally about like King Henry VIII founded the Church of England, which continues to be like the preferred choice of British people who aren't religious, but like need to tell their children to have something to say if they're going to be accepted as posh or something like that, where like Episcopalianism is just like my understanding of it is that it's like the version of Protestantism that you do if you need for like social or career reasons to like not seem like an atheist. (laughs) you know or to seem christian enough to be respected by like actual christian and like a lot of a lot of episcopalians believe a lot of things but a lot of them i think are just like unitarians who don't want to deal with all the acoustic guitar and so my mom like went to episcopalian church because she had i think friends who went there as a teenager and that was like something she did on her own as like a social thing. So it's sort of like the social currency of American life is in vague Christianity. But anyway. So they're at the PTA meeting. So they're at the PTA meeting. And this is also Charlotte Winona Ryder's character is 15 and she's obsessed with nuns. And her mother is also a lapsed Jew, but she's like, I want to be a nun. I'm, I want to be Catholic. I, and she's like obsessed with the nuns, which I love because there is like a strain of adolescent girl. And I also had this where you're just like, I just fucking love nuns. And these are children who have not had to actually deal with nuns, I think, pretty much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you make of this whole thing? Because like her whole deal mm-hmm. is she like her mother who she has conflict with and although it's all the conflict is like loving until it culminates in the end and there's some consequences mm-hmm. she's very much like her mother and she's very impassioned and extremely horny inside mm-hmm. and do you think that like she thinks that this path to the nunhood is going to save her from the impulses that she sees like wrecking her mom's life hmm. even though i don't think that like her mom's life is really wrecked but like her view is like that they have to move around a lot and that right. sucks and that's destabilizing and that sucks and yes she's absolutely. like a military brat but her mom is in the army of love is a battlefield you know <laughs> because like she, she- <laughs> She even says, she says the thing where she's like, if I forget what the prompt is, but like, if I could meet anyone, I'd meet Anne Frank. Like nothing about her can experience the pleasure that she feels like she has to like sit next to suffering, belief, the inevitability of death, et cetera, rather than feel the fact that she wants to make out with a 26 year old townie and eventually have sex with him. I mean, I feel like I really relate to this movie's (laughs) picture of just the entire absolute intensity of being a kid yeah Yeah. right like a kid and a teen and it doesn't necessarily need to be about anything in a Mm. too serious way where it's just Mm. like oh my god it's so intense to be 15 like I'm horny for the first time what is this (laughs) like what's happening to me what's my it's just so intense and it really cracks me up because you know she has all this conflict with her mom And she has this constant inner monologue where she's having all these thoughts and like, oh, Lord, strike me down, right? Like all these funny things. And she's not talking very much, actually. Most of what we hear is in her brain. Right, she never talks. Mostly she's silent and shares like what's going on with you. And she sits there quietly. And then in her brain, she's like, mother, my life is falling apart. Like I'm going to hell, da, da, da. But she doesn't say any of that to anyone except for her own self. Well, and I think there's like... I don't know the way lust manifests in adolescence, you know, at least in my experience as an adolescent girl, it's like it feels very destabilizing. Right. Because you have Uh this idea of like what you like and what you have, you know, what kinds of 
people you want to know and what you want your life to be about and your plans and your dreams. And then you start experiencing random lust, often for idiots. And you're like, oh, my God, you know, and your sense of Uh control is really affected by that. (laughs) Totally. I agree that like some extent it's nothing, but I also think that there's some conflict with if your mom makes you feel out of control, a logical way to go is to be, go in the opposite direction uh-huh. of your mom, yeah. at least before you start to sort stuff through. And fuck, like what happens if you go the opposite way, but you're still horny internally <laughs> and <laughs> your mom makes out with the guy that you're horny for? It's oh like my the, God. you're always oh. under attack of your mom's spell and influence. To be fair, I don't feel like they made out. I feel just like it was kissy. to quote Peep Show, a bit of tongues. You know, but but yes, it's how are you supposed to take that? If she had killed 100 people, I would, you know, no jury would convict her if I were on the jury. But right. And that nuns feel like this icon of like the idea because there's there's like the illusion of convent life and nuns as like a way to control the feminine, you know, because we cut off their hair and put them in outfits where no one can see any cleavage or exciting calves or ankles. Boobs are never in the room when yeah. it runs around. <laughs> but then if, exactly. <laughs> and, but they are. And if Charlotte, had, yes. you know, actually joined an order, like maybe she would or join one of those really gay ones I'm always hearing about, you know, and then her life so. would be about sex and cheese. And, you know, and yeah, well, and then speaking of nuns too, there's like also the aspect, and this gets into Cher's growing relationship with Bob Hoskins, the shoe salesman, where like she has this family life with the girls where like, you know, there's problems. For example, she only serves hors d'oeuvres because anything bigger is too much commitment, which is something I love. As a great- <laughs> and also I was like, oh, shit, like I spent most of my 20s, you know, having dips for dinner. Am I Cher? Only in the depressing food way. You are kind of, you are like a grazer. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, because there's some, there's the land of plenty, especially the Trader (laughs) Joe's part. But like, you know, that they have a life and a sense of independence. Cher has a sense of independence that she can pick up and start over again whenever she wants to. She's never going to run out of little towns in America that she can pick at random. I would love to know some of the other places they live. Like, did they end up in like, Barrow, Alaska at one point or like Guam. (laughs) And so when Bob Hoskins comes into the picture and actually is like really cool and great and like paints her as Cleopatra and gets along with the girls and isn't an asshole because we've learned that they're kind of bouncing around the country because of her preference for assholes and married guys. It's like, oh, like, are we willing to like change the atomic structure of this family? Which I also love because I feel like as someone who grew up with a dad who was like, in many ways, very loving and who I liked having in my life, but also didn't like having in the house because he was so volatile and mean so much of the time. Like, I've always been extremely bothered by the cultural assumption that, like, kids need a dad around. And it's like, I mean, if there was a good dad as an option, then yes, that would be great. But if the options are bad dad or no dad, then like, no, they don't. Like, what's that about? Right. And the the mythology supporting that And the need to keep that myth in place is, you know, a big part of, I think, so many of the problems our country has in terms of, you know, white nationalism and separation of church and state and everything else. But like against all that, Mermaids bravely stands, you know, and I love that Cher is like, look, we have a good thing going. Like, I don't know if I would interrupt that even for Bob Hoskins himself. And in my like vaguest memory of watching this before I rewatched it. I remembered them getting married at the end and what a delight that they don't. And they're just dating at the end. (laughs) You know, Cher and the daughters are dancing in the kitchen and Bob Hoskins is living at the apartment above the shoe store. Like, yeah, this is wonderful. Great ending. Yeah. I love the, we're going to see how it goes ending. And it does feel especially, you know, and I'm basing this idea on media, but also the stories we hear about each other's grandparents and stuff that like if as a single parent you started dating someone in 1963 you would almost immediately be like well we've all gone out for pizza once and the kids seem to like you and you haven't attacked any of them in front of me so (laughs) let's get married yeah literally true yeah they move into this new town the courtship of mrs flax begins and charlotte 
notices that the nunnery next door is being grounds kept by Michael Schofling, also the star of 16 Candles and Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken, (laughs) which is like quite a trinity of films and probably something else. But like, my God, what a legacy. And then he quit to like make furniture or something, as far as I know. He he was described once as like the J.D. Salinger of 80s movie teen (laughs) (laughs) I hope he's still hot out there and uh, behaving himself but yeah this is a movie (laughs) those are the two hopes you can have for someone you haven't heard from for a while yeah be hot behave yourself (laughs) right yes may the road rise up to meet him and so on but like I hadn't seen this movie again since I was close to Charlotte's age and so it did not occur to me then like it occurs (laughs) to me now how insane it is to have a 15 year old main character who's like i have a 26 year old love interest and then that happens you know like it did in real life a lot at the time and now right and before the dynamic changes like for reasons her mom is encouraging it yeah she's like he's 26 and cute as a button and it's like (laughs) she's like have fun on your date sweetheart (laughs) it's like what if you're wondering if this child eventually has sex with the 26-year-old and this family comedy, the answer is yes. Yes. <laughs> she sure does. On top of a tower. She climbs up a tower and they, yeah. And he's also the school bus driver. It's like, why is everyone affiliated with the school? Yeah. Particularly this man that has sex with a 15-year-old. <laughs> right. Yeah. He drives her on the school bus. Then they go on a fishing date. He's like, bring your little sister. And she's like, no, thank you. This is a date for me. And then they have sex on a tower. You know, the way that 15-year-old girls do, I think, at least, again, based on my experience, I think I just saw myself as like, completely ready for relationships with grown-ups. And like so many teenage girls, Mm -hmm. I was grossed out by teenage boys. Fairly. They are gross. Like, particularly if you're, and I'm not, I want to be careful about how I say this, but like, particularly if your mom's entire relationship with men is just having sex with a bunch of men, but not ever talking with you about it. Cause that mm-hmm. becomes clear at the end where she's like, oh, I guess we're late to the birds and bees talk. If everything you've seen about sort of like, this is how you relate to not boys, to men, mm-hmm. and then your mom teases you in an encouraging fashion to like get with this guy yeah obviously and then to your point 26 year old maybe 30 plus actor at that time jake ryan versus any dweeb who's 15 years old in eastport massachusetts uh the choice is obvious i mean right yeah i also just want to point out because it has to go somewhere that this movie was directed by richard benjamin of milk money fame of milk money fame and who's an actor and director who i feel like we don't remember like the kids today all know all about elliot gould but the 60s couldn't have happened without richard benjamin he was in goodbye columbus he was in catch 22 and he's mr paula prentice so that's really nice. Um, <laughs> Paula Prentice was in the Stepford Wives, and we love her. But this movie, this came out in 1990. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. This feels very much in the raft of movies, including and then inspired by the incredible success of Dirty Dancing that were funded, I think, basically based on someone going into a room and being like, boomers. Yeah. They remember <laughs> stuff. They like stuff they remember. <laughs> put out a movie put some shanan on there that stuff sells itself <laughs> and so this movie is like so part of the the boomer nostalgia moment that charlotte and michael Schofling first connect and start to make out and like get together romantically because they are both so sad about the kennedy assassination oh, yeah <laughs> what are our thoughts on this I like it. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing makes me hornier than a president getting assassinated. I believe that. (laughs) I can't imagine a thing that would get me hornier this year. I mean, I kind of like it for her. This character who's totally deranged by her own horniness, right? Being like, oh, great. She's walking through the town and she says, like, it feels like there are no adults left in the world, right? Like, the world is topsy-turvy. This is my chance to, like, Mm. anything can happen. I'm going to make my move on the 
elder groundskeeper. Yeah, she makes out with Jake Ryan and then she like sees all these statues of angels all around her. Yeah. She she like has kind of a Jimmy Stewart and Vertigo moment and freaks out and just like runs for it and then she takes the family car and drives to Connecticut. So good. Which again, like what well, I I love her. <laughs> uh, yeah, this was kind of my 15th year. I acted like this. You're like, I'm having too big a feeling. I got to drive to Connecticut about it. I secretly took a bus from Maine to Pennsylvania to meet with an adult woman that I met on the internet. Right. Like, I you're 15. Things are crazy. You made it out of your teens without any of your organs getting harvested and you know, that's that's all you can ask for. Yeah, so she goes to Connecticut and then talks for the first time. Yes, and then she just spills a whole bunch of stuff. She does that thing we've all done before where we get into a weird situation and we're like, the only way through this is to act normal. Mm-hmm. And then you forget what that involves. <laughs> and you say every word in your head. And some that's like words that were never in your head, but somehow they're coming out of your mouth anyway. Like, where did they come from? You'll never know. Yeah. She says her name is Val and she has a, no, she, is her name Val or Sal? And she has a brother named Al because their family <laughs> loves rhyming. <laughs> and then you realize beautifully, this is a beautifully directed movie. Yeah. Good job, Richard. But good job, Mr. Paula. Mr. Paula. You realize that they know pretty immediately and they are contacting home and Bob Hoskins comes and they never they really don't the movie doesn't over explain anything like just Bob Hoskins is there and you know she has to go home mm-hmm. it's not there's not like a long dramatic car ride or anything it's just like Hoskins is here to take care of business well and I really like also that the movie doesn't and this will be even more so later but the movie doesn't ever really punish her like she has weird consequences for her weird behavior but the movie's never like yes bad this is why like you know you must suffer now it's just like no that's what happens when you drive your family's car away is that you embarrass yourself and then they come get you I wonder if that's like the reason why she's not facing any consequences outside of like her mom will ice her sometimes but like Maybe that's why she's punishing herself all the time. Yeah. Like she sees the angels. <laughs> she's like, <laughs> there. someone is judging me. Apparently it's them. Hmm. It's interesting because it's like, because she's fundamentally at odds with herself, right? Because she mm. feels these these desires and feelings. And I think she like desires nunhood for whatever combination of, of reasons, but also as like, I think there's a real desire for something there but also just a reaction against what she sees as the perils of how her mom lives her life sure but then in terms of Cher's character it's like is she at odds with herself is that her problem or like what's her what how does she have to grow in all this yeah well I don't know that she's at odds with herself or if she's even in conversation with herself it seems like she'll do what she wants to do until the situation has been contaminated by kind of the inevitable drama and then she leaves Mm -hmm. and her growth is like in one time because her kids like you're fucking up my life please just give it a year Mm -hmm. she doesn't right and I love that size of growth we talked about this with Bad Santa yeah I love that size of growth like in Mm -hmm. a movie that it's like I'll make one choice that's different from the choice I always make this one time and we'll see what happens like that to me is beautiful Mm -hmm. because that's how people grow I what do you what do you think do you think that she is in conversation with herself in any way throughout this I mean I think so much of Cher's storyline right is that she her conflict is with being a mother and with being like the mother figure in the family right and she mentions at one point that she was only a year older than Winona when she had her. So she would have been 16 or 17 when she had her first kid. And I think that's her conflict is just never having comfortably matured into the parent role in her family or in her kind of self-conception. And so her growth is becoming the parent, right? And Winona's always saying, Mm -hmm. I feel like the adult and you're the kid in this family. And so Cher, like accepting that she's the adult is her growth that she has to do or that she's finally figuring out through this process yeah yeah letting bob hoskins into the configuration feels like it reinforces what she has to learn how to do for her kids as well which is you know you can't you're not a free agent anymore 
mm-hmm. you know? Right. Yeah. Well, and there's, there's, there's this like extremely, uh, I mean, obviously, but there's this extremely gendered dynamic with her dynamic, which is she'll be in a town until she's said like, it's not, it's not this way explicitly, but until she's not allowed to be in the town anymore, because like she has messed up some man's uh, this, I'm, I'm framing this in the way that it would be framed, but like, because she has messed up some man's marriage mm-hmm. or whatever careful there he's messed up his own marriage and she's right, been a party the, to it but right but that's how yeah. she has to leave before the pitchforks come out yeah exactly yeah exactly exactly she's like nicole kidman in practical magic yeah so totally so this is the first time that she that it seems like i mean obviously her daughter is asking for some change the discord that has been sort of set here has has led to some acting out like driving to connecticut and act and spoiler alert almost letting your sister drown but this is also the first time like in the kind of relationship that she has that it seems like it's even on the table to stick around in any real way so that's nice that that's there Which leads to a question I have really about life in general, but also about this movie, which is, can you learn to have better taste in romantic partners? (laughs) Great question. (laughs) And I think you can, but I don't know how you do it, except for life experience, some of it very bitter. And that's not a comforting answer so yeah i feel like this is the reverse of sharon moonstruck where she's like <laughs> i have taught myself to have better taste it's johnny camerary <laughs> and then ronnie's like no <laughs> you know love will fuck you up and you will die like choose me and she's like yes <laughs> well we know we know by way of like the two at least be uh, by way of the two dads of these mm-hmm. two sisters that like you know she doesn't have much of a reason to expect that you're going to get much more than you should just probably eventually leave. And this, it seems like it's the first time that it's presented, not in presented as if like, this is the perfect man to marry or whatever, but this Mm -hmm. is a person who is into me and also is making moves wants asks for her hand, but doesn't seem murdery after she says no. Right. Mm -hmm. Isn't seemingly trying to set a trap. Just wants me to disinterestedly come to Cooperstown to watch me touch Lou Gehrig's baseball (laughs) glove. You know, what a hunk. Yeah. Even on a smaller level, just his like total acceptance of the really weird household manners of their house. Like he brings bagels over and she like slices and dices them up into a little hors d'oeuvres platter. And he's like, this is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. But it's, you know, it's fine. Like, great. I'm into this. <laughs> she just wants a little class. She just wants, you know, she doesn't want the commitment of a a main dish. But yeah, I love that she's making minis of everything. I also, I feel like Bob Hoskins' paintings represent a lot somehow. <laughs> yeah, his paintings. Yeah, talk about that, please. What do you think they represent? Well, so he paints, right? And he has Cher pose for him as Cleopatra. And then we see Charlotte looking at the painting he did. And what's great about it is that it's like, you know, on a technical level, not a good painting, right? right? But on a level of like pure heart, you're like, it's great. I love it. Like there's a lot happening there. And we were introduced. There's like a beautiful cut. I feel like in the 90s, what really separated movies you would see in a theater versus movies you would watch on TV, I think a lot of the time was like editing, you know, and how much got cut and how many scenes went on for too long and like we kind of start in the middle of a scene where he's showing his paintings to share. And she's like, these are really awful. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I said, I loved doing it. I didn't say, say I was good at it, <laughs> you know? And that, that again, that like, these are all details about a character that like, he's like offering the gift of doing something he loves because that's how he wants to relate to share and like to appreciate her beauty. And like the muse is calling and like he doesn't need it to be a good painting and he doesn't need her to like pretend that it's a good painting because there's just like so much about like the implicit rage of like men, especially of this kind of age sure. and world mm-hmm. and era where you're just like, especially, you know, after consuming as many stories as I have at this age, you're like so trained by the the media that you remember. And it you kind of put this in conversation with like this boy's life both the the memoir Mm. by tobias wolf and the movie starring baby leo where it's like you can be a single family and things can be dicey but like things will be so much better than if you bring you know a man and his anger and his insecurities into the home which 
in that movie was Robert De Niro, who I could also see play, playing a shoe salesman who does bad paintings. But like, <laughs> you know, that like he's he's happy to be here. He understands that it's a privilege to have sex with Cher, for God's sake. Yeah. And he's he's like, you know, I think this is what you were just speaking to is it's like they're Bob Hoskins is the one out of 100 men at this time, maybe at this specific time as well, where if you say you're not actually great at the thing that you do, that you're not under like some like physical or at least psychological threat. I think if he had like murdered her for saying that, then like he could theoretically be found not guilty by reason of insanity by a jury yeah. in Massachusetts at that time. Definitely. You know, they're like, well, a woman insulted you, you know, you really had no choice but to strangle her in front of her children. Yeah. Similarly, when they have sex for the first time and she's like, you're actually really sexy. And he's like, you're surprised. And she's like, yeah, I am. But <laughs> like, you know, a lot of men would not take that well in a scary way. And he's just like, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. here we are. Like, see you next Friday. <laughs> yeah. Part of why I get annoyed at the sort of great inflation of American serial killers and how we like to pin unsolved murders on some fascinating mystery man who's killed so many people because he's crafty and he's smart. It's like so many women get murdered because they're on a date with some guy and they laugh at the wrong moment or he can't get it up. And then he just like can't deal with it and he kills them, mm. you know, because it's I'm not saying that this is like I've seen this happen with my eyes because based on, you know, like cold cases that get solved later on, sometimes the patterns you can kind of predict by the stories we do know about. And just the fact that like, if you're a lot stronger than somebody else, you can kind of kill them with your bare hands before you even realize what you're doing. I'm sorry I'm talking about this in an episode about mermaids, but it's all, you know, American culture is a, is a tapestry and it's hard to know what part we're going to land on. <laughs> Most people know the drill. Yeah. It feels like this movie is really like this is a relationship where just like the nice feeling that you get when Sharon Bob Hoskins are together. This is like one of the main things I always remembered about it. And it was so nice to come back to. Yeah, it's so silly that this is the selling point. But like it's a movie about all sorts of things. But like one of the lovely things is that like the male love interest is genuinely interested in the woman that he is interested in yeah interested in and like a little in awe of the fact that he gets to spend time with her yeah as he should because it's Cher yeah and then it, and that's so true of Moonstruck too like I remember because yeah. I just watched it again at, at Vidiot's in LA while drinking a beer poured by Harmony Colangelo and just like Maybe it was just because of like the power of share that we could accept men treating her the way she deserved within stories, even if we didn't see that so much happening to other performers. Sure, like Cher's also role from Moonstruck forward in anything that she shows up in is like, I am a god. Mm -hmm. Treat me as such. Yes. That's awesome. <laughs> Claire, like, what do you think is because you wrote uh, a whole chapter in your book about divas and like what what is the social purpose of divas in your opinion with Cher as an example oh that's so good yeah I feel like because so in my book right it was about kind of Aries and astrology can be seen as the diva I mean she's not an Aries but she's such a diva and it's so good to have these figures I guess no so something I wrote about in that book that I think about a lot is long ago in my 20s, I was working in the kitchen in New York and it was mostly other women who worked there and it was so fun and so great. And we just had a nice time cooking our little foods for like the grocery store prepared foods case. And then this guy came in to be our new manager who came from like a chef's background, right? He mm. was like, I, I need to like test your knife skills. Are you all good enough to be in here? Let's run this place like a kitchen. And we're like, no, we are singing to Beyonce songs. We're singing songs. We're laughing and having fun. And he did not like that. It's basically the plot of Barbie. It was the plot of Barbie. Yeah. Bad Ken coming back from the patriarchy of the restaurant Man. kitchen to impose yeah. a new order on us. But he was just like driven to distraction by the music of like these diva performers. He hated Beyonce. He hated Mariah Carey. It just like drove him nuts that we would listen to these songs, which is just one of like many 
really blatantly just sexist like ways of his. And I think I'm always a little bit hesitant to call things too like feminist or subversive when it's just regular stuff of people living their regular lives, right? Like listening to a Beyonce song is not like a feminist rallying cry, Mm -hmm. but it is, there is something special. I think about just these like powerhouse women figures that drive men like that guy totally up the wall. Yeah. And, and, you know, in a, in a culture that made more sense, like it wouldn't be a political act to enjoy a song by Cher or Beyonce, but it's like we've it's been forced into being political, you know, <laughs> which is very funny. Yeah. I, to grow up with Cher as a figure already in the culture, like maybe we all kind of grew up with different ideas of her. But my sense of her was that like she was a survivor and she had been a pop star since she was basically a teenager and like no one had ever kicked her off the podium and no one ever would. And Cher and America were just like destined to, you know, actually, I don't even know who's going to die first, you know, but that like she that she would always (laughs) be with us and that we were lucky to have her. Yeah, totally. No, I saw her live a few years ago and it was truly so wonderful that, you know, in the big hockey stadium and it's like me and my sister and these like cute teenagers in front of us and these like elders down on the floor because they have the money to get the really nice tickets and just like what a blessing that this woman in her 70s you know what I mean is just there and has been there for some of us our whole lives basically like so good we were born into the Cher dynasty yeah so all of this culminates in Charlotte you know feeling all these feelings for Jake Ryan that's not his name in this but whatever and not knowing what to do with them. And finally, after her mother has kissed him when he drove her home from a New Year's Eve party where she dressed up as a mermaid. That's why it's called Mermaids. It's a very interesting choice of title. She looks so good. She looks fucking incredible. So, she, you know, things are getting fraught in the household. And so on a night when she is in charge of her little sister... Charlotte takes her over to the nunnery so that she can go boink Jake Ryan. Well, and importantly, first she dresses up as her mom. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And in the cutest scene, it's so funny. Again, it's like none of it is played for like any moralizing. She agrees to give her little sister like a little cup of wine that if she like sips it, it's fine. Mm -hmm. And then after she turns around to keep dressing up like her mother, a lot of symbolism happening. Her sister just like, chugs half a bottle of Carlo Rossi. Yeah. Yeah. So we have like a drunk child on the scene. Um, And naturally in a coming of age story, and this is based on a novel. So naturally in a coming of age novel, during your first sexual experience, your little sister falls into cold, dark, deep water and has to be rescued by nuns. By nuns. (laughs) Who know that you were fucking. Oh, that the nuns will never forget. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and then basically it's it's about like, you know, coming coming to a town and being there long enough for there to be a crisis and it being the kind of crisis that caused them to flee all their other towns and deciding to stay and like deciding to make a life on top of their mistakes. Yeah. yeah. Great way to put that. Does he love me? I want to know. <laughs> And what is what is Cher's response to all of this, Sarah? Claire, I, w- I would like you to do Cher's response because I'm afraid I'll just do a sustained impression and we just can't handle that. <laughs> okay, well, so Cher, I think I'm at risk here also, but I'll do my best. Okay. You know, so Cher comes home from the hospital. They've discovered the sister is fine. Cher comes home from the hospital to pick up some things before she goes back. She says, don't even look at me or I'll kill you. Something like that. She's always... yeah. <laughs> threatening. I'll kick you till you're dead. I'll kick you till you're dead. (laughs) Um, And then, you know, then they have the fight that they've been needing to have this entire movie and probably their entire Mm. life together, Mm -hmm. where instead of just Winona having her intense monologue, she tells her mom, you know, I don't want to keep doing this. I don't want to keep moving. Let's stay here. And then they have their little too late birds and the bees talk. She's basically like, yeah, you got your horniness from me. Like, sorry about that. And it's very cute. 
And I mean, Claire, you're our New Year's girl. And this is a movie set around New Year's, which really those movies are hard to find as a category generally. But within that, like, how does this work for you as like a start of the year movie? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think in general, you know, coming of age movies can often work nicely as New Year's movies, right? Mm -hmm. Where you've kind of just gone through whatever thing and now you're at a different place in life. But I do think this one, especially in addition to just being set at New Year's, we're leaving the movie in a different place than we entered it. They all have different relationships with each other. Yeah. Cher has started this new way of life where she's going to stick around for a while. Yeah. And it feels like it's a story about accepting change, Mm -hmm. you know, which ironically Cher has been able to avoid change by changing her family's geographic circumstance so often, but doing it the same way every time, you know, and she gets to stay the same by always outrunning her problems. You know, growth sometimes is about staying in the same place and letting your problems catch up with you. Totally. Well, I think I've been thinking a lot just about this movie as kind of a companion piece to Moonstruck for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. Right. And Moonstruck is so much a movie about sex and death, right? Like it's operatic, Mm -hmm. it's big. And this movie is kind of about the more pedestrian cousins of those things, which is like (laughs) horniness and getting older. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Why do you think that this is a movie that gets requested as often as it does? Mm. I think to me, the respect for the like total bonkers intensity of Winona's 15 year old inner life is really unique in movies. Mm. And I think you see it somewhat more in books, but in movies, that's not something that you see really ever. And kind of holding the duality of like, this is really over the top and silly. And also this is deadly serious to her in a real way. And that's a hard balancing act to manage. And I think this movie does it really nicely. Yeah. In terms of why this gets requested so much, I feel like, you know, it makes sense in terms of the era of movies that we cover. It's, you know, a lot of 80s and 90s stuff. So this is right dead in the middle. It's like a horny coming of age movie for horny teens. I think we have a lot of horny listeners. (laughs) It's about being too horny and also having too many feelings and about being prone to obsessions and special interests. So it's a little bit spectrumy. It's got share in it. So it's got, you know, it's gay. I don't know. It's just like it's hitting so many sweet spots that reveal if this is our most requested movie, then this, you know, reveals a lot of great things about the people who listen to this show that deserve to be highlighted. And also it just, you know, yeah, I think to Claire to what you're saying, like I I'm kind of inclined, I guess, because they're set really kind of one right after the other to put it in conversation with Dirty Dancing. Um, the way you put it in conversation with Moonstruck and that these are both movies based on words written by women, which in the 80s was about as close as you could get to actually helming a movie as a woman as as could be imagined. And that they're really about like the inner life of teenage girls. We see a lot of teenage girls in media. We move them around. We dress them up. We manipulate them into different positions. But like their actual thoughts and feelings are still pretty uncharted territory. Yeah. They're like almost 100% of the time sexualized and not given sexual agency. Right. Or not, you know, mm-hmm. like just like the obsession with nuns, you know, and, and by the way, if you ever <laughs> want to read a Wikipedia page that escalates really quickly, read the, the one for the singing nun who Charlotte <laughs> is watching in the opening of this, you've been warned, but Yeah, that like she has, you know, the kind of interiority that you can only get by having like specific thoughts and interests and ideas that make you not a placeholder for everyone watching, but like an actual character, which I think we see less with teenage girl characters than with a lot of other demographics. Yeah, totally. Well, we know that these girls' fathers left the picture. But who, in your view, Claire Comstock Gay, is the daddy of uh, mermaids? I mean, I feel like this is such an obvious answer as to not be interesting. And I apologize for that. But Bob Hoskins, like, it's him. Yeah. Beautiful. Why? What is your what is your reasoning? I mean, I think kind of to what we were talking about earlier, the total lack of that poisonous insecurity in him just the confidence, the wholesome, pure lust that he kind of emanates when he's with Cher. Like, (laughs) yeah, 
Yeah. That's what we need. That's the future liberals want. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I don't, I, I feel like I don't have any other answer. <laughs> than, I mean, I've, you know, share, share for all of the reasons, but share, you know, share in this movie really kind of has to be parented mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. really interesting and important ways. And so I'm going to pick Charlotte nice. because she eventually has to mother her mother. Mm-hmm. and let her know what her needs are and maybe accidentally let her mom know what some of her needs might be, even though she is not familiar with them. So, um, you know, Charlotte, after she has a little uh, post-coital enlightenment, <laughs> knows what she needs to be mothered by her mom. And I think that that's great. Sarah Marshall. I mean, I feel like I have to give awards to um, Winona Ryder and Christina Ricci because they're both such young actors and they're both giving such really wonderful performances where they're playing a whole person. I'm going to give it to Mr. Paula, Richard Benjamin. He made a movie about women. The thing everyone said couldn't be done. You did it, you bastard. You did it, you bastard. There's also, I just read... um, Probably is my last book of the year, Nora Ephron's Wallflower at the Orgy. It's uh, the first book of her collected magazine pieces. And it closes with a piece about being on set as Mike Nichols is directing Catch-22, and at least in that depiction. And the article is about how, you know, at least as far as she can tell, it's a very fun set. And the, the idea that good filmmaking comes from that and from people getting along and having a nice time. Really lovely. Claire Comstock-A! How do people find you? Oh, um, <laughs> I'm on social media at Claire Comstock Gay. My book is called Madam Clairvoyance Guide to the Stars, and you can find it at bookstores. It's great. We love it. And it's such a wonderful book. And we didn't even get into astrology about this movie, but I have to ask, what sign has 2023 been? What would you give to it? Oh, boy. <laughs> I wish I wish the at home listener could see what happened to Claire's face just now. <laughs> I feel like I don't want to do that to anybody. Twenty twenty three's been so rough and so weird. You know what I mean? And someone's gonna go, oh no, that's oh, no. me. <laughs> that's really nice. Yeah. Let's have a very quick you're wrong about the fastest ever, which is some people think that astrology means that some signs are jerks and some are not jerks. Claire, is that true? Are some people destined to be jerks? Believe it or not, that's not true. <laughs> all, all the signs are good and all the signs have bad things about them. And all of the signs are ultimately good and fine. And ultimately, we are good. Uh, ultimately, we're good. It's true. It came around. People tease me. Yeah, whenever I look at someone's chart... I go, oh my God, that's such a good chart. And they're like, you just say that to everyone. And I do, because they're all good (laughs) charts. Oh, that's so nice. (laughs) All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Thank you so much to Claire Comstock Gay for joining us. Don't forget to look for Claire's book, We'll have that linked in the show notes. Uh, It's great. Truly, we all have it. And I love it. And also, you can look uh, for the other episodes that Claire's been in. We've talked about Titanic with Claire. We've talked about Moonstruck. We've talked about Newsies. Uh, We have so much fun with Claire. And I'm glad that she was back for this episode. Thanks to Miranda Zickler for producing this episode. Thanks to Fresh Lesh for providing the beats that make the episode sound so sweet. Thanks for supporting us on Patreon and Apple Podcast subscriptions. That's how we're able to pay all of the names of folks (laughs) that we've mentioned on this episode. So thanks for supporting us and making it possible for us to make this a part of all of our jobs. We appreciate you. Hey, uh, you can leave a review if you like the show on uh, Apple Podcasts. I think that there's also some way to leave some review and commentary on Spotify, but uh, Apple Podcasts is kind of the primary one. And, you know, if you're interested in supporting us, that's a fun and easy way to do that. We're on social media at You Are Good or You Are Good Pod. And uh, I think that's it for now for this episode of You Are Good. Don't forget that you, my friend, are good. Good.